Greetings fellow adventurers, Robin here. A quick thank you to everyone that supported us through Patreon to help us move forward with our creative dreams. And a special thank you to CR for their generous support. If you'd like to join them, please go to www.patreon.com slash mocopress. Hello and welcome. I'm Robin Childs. I'm Corey Childs. And I'm Matt Parker. Together we form the Moco Expedition, three good friends exploring the mysteries of storytelling craft. You may be familiar with Pixar's 22 Rules of Storytelling. As part of an ongoing series, every other episode we'll be exploring one of these 22 rules. You'll hear our connections, objections, exceptions, examples, and things you might not have considered when you first sat down to apply these principles. On today's episode, Pixar Rule number 7. Come up with your ending before you figure out your middle. Seriously, endings are hard get yours working up front. So grab your writing notebook, put on your best adventurer's cap, and welcome to the MoCo Expedition. And it's important to note that we've all finished, we've all figured out our endings, us, the, when we're writing this in the podcast, because you always end with the words, the end, or if you're pretentious, fin. Word the end is is sufficient. We're done. I figured it out. I followed the rule. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? My God, that explains why they, this is a rule, and they say endings are hard. Right, because if you don't ever put those words in, people start reading the back of the book, looking at the edges of pages, wondering where's the rest of the story. Right. All I have here is an index. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and then about the author. Is this textual? Is there, a, is there a narrative arc to the index that I'm missing? I don't feel like Appendix A grew as a person, but I don't know if I'm at the end. <laughs> that's that's on the author. Appendix A grew as a person. <laughs> oh, that tickled me. Sorry. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> Mostly, I think this one's really important uh, as a as a rule, personally. But that's probably because I'm very goal oriented. So for me, I have to know where I'm going. I it might change as I go through the story, but then the ending will be specifically altered. So I still know what it is. I guess personally, for me, uh, and I've said this before, that my, my writing style is very piecemeal. I like to, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess when a story comes to me, it usually comes in that big, uh, that big moment, and I kind of have to work the story around to either get there, or by the time I do get there, be, from working the story around, the story will ch have changed enough that that big moment has transformed or can be cut entirely. But oftentimes, that that big moment is the end. So I, I think it's really, really important. Um, your ending is what finishes out your theme. And if you, uh, if just like in a uh, speaking presentation where you're supposed to tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. If you don't have a good ending, you're not telling your audience what you told them. You're not reinforcing your theme, and the story doesn't feel complete. So I, I can see how this, this is uh, good, but just kind of in general, I think as a more general advice... Um, I think what they mean is know where you're going. So I, I, I think it's really, really important to kind of have a sense that you as the author know where the story is going because 
if you don't, it, it's really obvious. I've seen a lot of stories just kind of peter out because somebody had a cool premise or somebody had a cool idea. Um, this seems to be a big thing in manga recently. Um, I was talking with my friend Kenton, and he's, he's been watching a bunch of anime recently on Netflix, one of which was Sword Art Online, which was the idea that you can get trapped in this MMO by a megalomaniacal uh, MMO CEO guy, I guess. Um, also known as, hey, dot .hack was cool if we ignore the fact that it was also weird and kind of dumb and long. And already been done. Yeah, that was my initial thought. I was like, so it's hack. And he was like, uh, I guess? I haven't seen that? And uh, It sounds like there are some differences, but again, uh, the show seems like it's predicated on its premise, and um, I haven't seen it, but as I understand it, it's it's very, uh, very much focused on that as its premise, and um, theme might not be as important. Um, the other one he was telling me about, I can't remember what it was called, but the premise was is that uh, police had come up with a way, in, in Japan, police had come up with a way to, uh, like, each of their guns could tell if you were, uh, how likely you were to be a criminal, and the gun would shoot ordnance based on uh, how high your threat index would be. So, like, if you were somebody who would never commit a crime, the gun wouldn't shoot you. If you were somebody who was kind of likely, it would be, like, stun you. And if you were, like, a super criminal, it would kill you really bad, I guess. It would, like, really extra Ultra murder you. Ultra dead kill you. Right. And um, he said the issue with that show was it just seemed like somebody had come up with a cool idea for a gun. And then <laughs> it was like, so, so like, like a guy comes into the studio and he's like, so I've got this cool idea for a gun. And um, so, so it. It changes. It like changes shape and 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 uh, it shoots criminals. And but some criminals can fool it because they they have they they don't fit into the index. But the cops don't know that. And 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 so so I've got this cool idea for a gun. And then somebody said, "All right, how many episodes of that can you make?" And that was the show. And uh, again, that sounds totally to me like somebody didn't come up with an ending, didn't come up with a finishing idea. And I've rambled for the last like six or so minutes. So somebody stop me. Well, what I like about knowing your ending is that you can actually build a theme. You can you can build a story with intention if you know what you're trying to say. Because at the end, it's sort of that, you mentioned it, this tell them what you're going to tell them, tell it to them, and then tell what you've told them. You can only tell what you've told them if you knew what you were going to say in the first place. So coming up with an ending is almost the same as coming up with a beginning. It's just that it's more complete. It's the completion of that. Well, and I think that the the important thing to remember is that, like you said, this can change. That there's a great benefit in kind of knowing where you want the story to end up. Like, And that can even be very broad. Like, who is the killer? Why are they killing? And are they going to get caught? But that can change as you go on, um, as you realize, like we've talked about before, where your story is really going. Yeah. It, it's something that can be flexible. I think just knowing that you have a direction is valuable in itself. I have an interesting thought here, too. Is uh, It's not just... Uh, I, I think when you're trying to come up with your ending, if you're trying to uh, have your ending so that your, the rest of your story builds to it, it's important to make sure your ending makes sense. And I feel like a lot of times that just doesn't happen. There are a lot of films where it's okay. Well, we we got to here, and and for some reason they didn't copy edit. They didn't they didn't figure it out, and the ending 
they kind of drop the ball with the ending. So I think uh, a big part of this rule is, yes, come up with your ending first, but also make sure it's not stupid. Um, well, and I think that that's endings, and we've seen that we've seen this a lot recently in television shows. And we can, I mean, we can all list a long litany of them. Endings are hard to stick. Endings are hard to stick. One because in the television business, especially there is the aspect of television where you want it to go on for as long as possible. And then you find out, Nope, this is it. Wrap your shit up. And that can be very difficult. And in the movie business, I think a lot of times it gets fiddled with because of focus testing and corporate meddling saying, no, you can't do that. You have to have a happier ending. Um, but even just from the standpoint of writing them, endings are hard to stick because you have to know what your theme was. You have to know not just where you wanted to go, but where you have gone and be willing to commit to what that means. Absolutely. I, your story has to be complete. Uh, in order for the ending to stick. And I think a lot of people uh, forget that or assume that a climax equals completion. Um, I, actually, what you were talking about earlier with uh, a meddling from a higher up. Um, so I recently got Bioshock Infinite. Um, I have yep. not, I've not played it yet, so don't no spoilers. However, uh, the reason I haven't played it yet is because it came with the original Bioshock, which ah. I had I haven't played for about six years, and I wanted to go through it again to uh, prepare myself for the bigger Here, game, I Here's a spoiler. It's not infinite. Yeah, yeah, right. It's got an ending. Uh, from what I hear, it's got a good ending. Um, I, the, <laughs> I will be... Apparently that is debatable. <laughs> oh, great. I'm looking yes forward to playing this and, now. <laughs> yes and no. Play it. It's really interesting. Some of what it's really interesting about is unintentional. Uh-huh. And completely skip the DLC. I've heard the DLC is pretty good. Except in the DLC serves to completely subordinate what you did in Infinite to the original Bioshock. Huh. Okay. Weird. Um, I mean, okay. play them so you'll understand, but let me put it this way. In my mind, the canon ending to Bioshock Infinite is before the DLC starts. Mm -hmm. no, all, all right. I'll keep that in mind. Um, the point I'm just trying to get at is uh, back when they originally were developing Bioshock, um, a big part of it, and a big part of what they ended up using in the marketing for the game, for those of you who don't know, is uh, what was huge at the time was morality-based gameplay. And that was the idea that your choices, good or bad, pile up, and at the end, your ending for your uh, game is determined by if you're a goody-goody-two-shoes or, um, you know, uh, the Antichrist. Um, and, and usually people would complain because it would swing either way. If you were kind of in a moral gray area, the game would kind of just pick one for you, and that would be really odd. Um, however, um, through the development of Bioshock, through my research, I was researching the game, and um, apparently it originally had only one ending which is really, really odd that they would implement a morality-based gameplay choice system oh. with only one ending. See, and I'd heard that it originally was going to have... It was always going to have scales, but there was originally going to be multiple scales, not just did you take the girls, 
but right. did you inject yourself with plasmids? Because part of the theme was going to be that the more plasmids you put into yourself, the more of a tweaker you became. The less human you are. Right. And yeah. so do you choose to take the really useful powers at the risk of your humanity, or do you choose to keep your humanity and really be dependent on killing that last those last big daddies with your pistol. Well, um, and and you're right, but that's actually after the point in the development that I'm talking about. Oh, interesting. O- yeah, originally there was only going to be one ending, and one of the brass over at the game company, one of the executives who wasn't involved, came in and said, you know what's really big right now is multiple endings, so you need to add one. And that wasn't part of their original game design, but uh, what that tells me is, is they didn't have an ending in mind for their game, or they had one ending in mind for their game, and they thought it was perfect for the story they were telling. So um, that's kind of an interesting thing. I, I know that they ended up having to add the intro sequence on the plane and the alternate ending in pretty much at the 11th hour, and those were really, really important to the texture of the game. So, um, I, guess, I guess, yeah, I mean, you can kind of get away with it coming up with your ending at the end, at the very end in this case, but um, it's a gamble, I guess. Yeah. So, I, I guess I was just really surprised to hear that, where it was kind of a, oh, yeah, this, uh, I mean, it had a long development cycle, something like eight years, um, but in that time, it changed so much, and uh, for a good seven and a half years of that development cycle, the game that you would have gotten would have been awful, or at least not publicly well-liked. So, um, I, I just find that fascinating. If you're trying to tell one sort of story, yeah, it's always good to start at the end, I guess. Matt, you were talking about how in TV there's these extra um, limitations on feeling like you, you know, you need to go forever is the ideal, but you can have endings planned on a seasonal basis, so oh, that you, have, you can you essentially absolutely. quit at any time. So again, if you know the ending in advance, you actually are freeing yourself from this. Um, I think the the bigger issue is not so much the well. It ties into the idea that you know we have to keep this going on forever. Is that people keep resetting, and that's a, a pretty big common problem. Is that uh, writers will have the need to reestablish a status quo rather than allowing growth. So at the end of like burn notice. Every single season ends by resetting the status quo of that show to the point where you actually start losing people because it's like, why am I even bothering watching this? Nothing's ever going to change. Why don't I just watch the finale every, yeah. every season? Yeah, that show It'd did lose me. It'd be the same me. thing every time. Why would yeah. I bother? It'd be the same episode. Yeah, I, I stopped watching that after, I want to say, season five for that very reason. Um, I, I get why they did it in that show and they kind of have an excuse, which is that show is supposed to be a send-up to 80s-style uh, action procedurals. And those shows operated like that. I guess, um, but if you're going to kind of do a retro pistache, understand that uh, doing just a straight copy of it is not necessarily the best way you can do it. Sometimes it's good to bring in a little modernity to your uh, to your project in order to not lose a modern audience. Right, and that's I and you can build in those little traps, but it's hard to do, and. It, it everybody gets complacent and even if you're you're building those in sometimes it can be things like 
a, a, a character, uh, an actor leaves the show unexpectedly or dies unexpectedly. Um, and that can be hard to plan for. Uh, J. Michael Straczynski did it uh, to very interesting effect where he allegedly had escape hatches for all of the characters. I, I imagine he came up with that after season one in particular, or even after the pilot just because of so many characters shifted around from the pilot to the show of Babylon 5. And then, of well, course, and I think, with... I think part of it was just he knew that it could happen and that it was such a structured show that if he didn't have it, it would wreak havoc. And I believe the only one that we saw ever go off was Talia Winters. Right, yeah. Which I'm um, not exactly certain why she loved the show, but yeah, the, it was decently elegant, I guess. It definitely hits you in the feels when she lives the show. I mean, some of the other ones, like um, Sinclair was not a planned one, but it was a um, a reaction to the fact that JMS both realized that he had overwritten what Sinclair would need to be doing in order for him to accomplish all of his plot goals. And it was revealed uh, just last year that it was also due to uh, the actor's lifelong battle with schizophrenia. Right. Um, and so, but it, it, that's hard to do. And yeah. even, even Straczynski, who was a master plotter, is a master plotter, got screwed on that with uh, season four. And for those of you that don't know, Babylon 5 was originally, and ended up being, a five-year arc but during season four uh the network came to him and said this is it get all your stuff done so he rushes and he gets two seasons worth of stuff done only for them to come back and say ha never mind you got a fifth season write more stuff <laughs> so the end of season four which is um a really interesting episode that really riffs on um, a canticle for Leibowitz, um, unintentionally, according to interviews, uh, was written kind of hastily uh, because the actual ending for the series um, had to be put at the end of season five because it had to be the end of the series. Right, because he'd come up with his ending first. Um yeah, I, I think people like that denouement, though, that, that coda, that, that m falling action moment, uh, particularly in Babylon 5, where you see where everybody goes, what they become. Um, and I actually really like uh, the last episode of Season 4, which they had to write on the rush in order to replace what would have been there. Um, oh, I do, too. It's which, a good yeah, episode. Which, which goes ahead thousands of years and kind of looks at the ramifications of what everyone did you know, millennia on, and th that's kind of cool having that zoom out in wide view, but of course, like you said, that's not the ending. The ending is actually a much more smaller, character-driven piece where everybody's just kind of having a dinner. And Yeah, sleep, that's Sleeping in the Light is, is the actual ending, and it's, don't get me wrong, I like the end of season four, but the end of season five has me cry like a baby. Right. Um, uh, actually, uh, another show that I think really does this well that that kind of really nails on the ending, and you definitely feel building up to it is Cowboy Bebop. Um, 
Robin and I have been watching through that again fairly recently, and uh, just just that sense of inevitability. Um, uh, spoiler alert here, I guess, if you haven't seen a sh- an anime that's 15, 16 years old now. Um, but is a classic. It is a cl- it is it is an, in my opinion the best uh, competently most competently written and uh, is uh, executed anime to date. Um, Cowboy Bebop ends with the death of its protagonist character, and um, when I was a teenager, when I watched it the first time, I hated it. I, I mean, I loved the show, but I hated that ending, and I didn't know why. But now watching it as an adult, I see that uh, that was the ending. It's inevitable, and you can feel it in every episode. Everything uh, foreshadows it, alludes to it, and you know the reason why he dies is not because of some fluke, but because um, it, it, he's not exactly fated to die, but you can see the character flaw that gets him to choose to not save himself. Well, and he was locked in this, this, the or, in orbit with the bad guy where they would inevitably be the, the characters as they were established were never going to not die in a shootout. Right. We're never not going to kill each other. Well, and, and you can see it in every episode when Spike is, de- how he deals with the uh, various problems he comes across. This is a man who uh, cannot let go of his past. And uh, it becomes clearer and clearer as you see clone character after clone character go by that people in this universe who do not let go of their past are destroyed by it. Well, and that's why that's that knowing the him. ending in advance is so key. Absolutely. Because you can create that feeling of inevitability. And what I really am loving about rewatching the series is that there are so many episodes that I've heard people go, oh, that's just the fun, you know, throwaway episode. That's filler. Right. No, it is not. The episodes that even look from the outside in to be filler, if you if you look at them for the, these thematic elements, it's yet again enforcing this inevitability. Um, the uh, Mushroom Samba is the most common episode that I've heard people say, oh, that's just a filler episode, in which um, they are tr- they are pursuing a, a bounty, because they're all bounty hunters, they are also starving because they have no money whatsoever, and... Uh, ran out of fuel. They ran out of fuel, they sort of crash on this planet, and this they get a hold of a whole bunch of mushrooms. And these are bad mushrooms that cause anyone that eats them to hallucinate. So a lot of people are like, oh, it's just this funny episode where you get to see like most of the cast completely high while this child savant tracks down the actual bounty so that they can have the cash to you know leave the planet. But all of the characters have symbolic calls to their an entire arc summarized in their particular uh hallucination and with the main character he's walking up an endless flight of stairs and a frog tells him that it's the stairway to heaven I mean I'm pretty sure he also dies on the stairs in the last episode we haven't gotten there yet so it's uh, yeah as I recall memory, he does but I'm dies almost on a certain that he dies on the stairs so I don't know how much more on the nose you could get than basically saying yeah this character and he's just stubbornly walking he doesn't get off the stairway he just keeps walking forever on it even after this warning so it's sort of even a throwaway quote-unquote episode has purpose when you know where you're going with it well i I think cowboy bebop as conceived is a greek tragedy and i didn't even think about it until i watched it as an adult but the show is uh uh very tightly scripted and it's designed to get to a point that is 
that is this uh, culmination of, of what is essentially one man, but ultimately one universe's flaws. And the show as a whole is very well constructed to get you there. But yeah, absolutely. I totally have the sense that um, they sat down and very early on in the development cycle said, all right, here are our characters and this one's going to die. Well, and they had clearly had something to say with it about about not changing, about yeah. refusing to change mm-hmm. or being unable to change and the, the tragedy of that. Does anybody else have any other really good examples of what would seem to be write your ending first? I'm trying to think. So what are great examples where the ending really... Right, oh, well, anything where the ending seems to stick. All right, I'd say The Sixth Sense. Yeah, absolutely. The Sixth Sense is... And, and a lot of thrillers and twist endings are built on this because you well, have good, to know. A good twist ending will be obvious yes. from the beginning, but you won't see it because that's not the way that they're leading you. But when you look back on it, it it'll, a, you know, a good one will be clear. Yeah, and that's and I think that the the sixth sense really was and based on his later work, a freak of accident uh, or a freak of nature, an accident where M Night Shyamalan was able to do that perfectly because it does so perfectly line up. Um, I I'm not exactly certain that like I I don't think it was luck, but I also don't think it was necessarily skill, and the reason for that is because um. I watched the movie. My dad, we watched the movie as a family. I think we were in San Francisco at the time, and we caught it while we were on vacation. And we came out of that movie, and uh, my dad and I were psyched, and we're like, "Wow, that was really, really good." And my mom thought it was boring, and she thought it was boring because it was way too predictable. And the reason it was way too predictable is because the ghost story in which the narrator is the ghost, or uh, you know, the main character was dead all along and didn't know it, is incredibly common in Eastern folklore. And my mother, being from the Philippines, had heard it a million times, so it was very, very predictable. M. Night Shyamalan, having a similar background, at least in terms of being from an Asian-ish culture, um, you know, he was telling a story he'd heard a million times growing up. So uh, it's not that he'd come up up with something innovative and something that nobody had ever heard of. He, He just told one story well that he'd heard a million times and that many people in the West had not heard before. That was it. So I, I think with uh, uh, M. Night Shyamalan, he didn't have to come up with a good ending in order to do the story well. The ending was written for him already. All he had to do was tell the story without screwing it up, and he did, in this case. And sadly, in no other case. I kind of like Unbreakable. Um, I know it's a bit Actually, of a slog, I, yeah, I but take I like Unbreakable. I do like Unbreakable. And um, I will never be able to forgive him for The Last Airbender. No. <laughs> and, and from what I've seen, Devil is atrocious, but in that kind of hilarious sort of way. He should just make parodies of his own work from here on out. I think it's telling that uh, his, despite the fact that he directed After Earth, his name was not used in any of the advertising. Yeah. Well, and um, Ralph Garman, who hosts uh, Hollywood Babylon with Kevin Smith, ran the After Earth panel at Comic-Con, uh, was hired to run panel? the After Earth panel at Comic-Con. Like like before it released or after? Yeah. Y- yeah, what? Before it released or after? <laughs> uh, sorry, before it released. Okay, okay, that makes sense at least. All right, yeah, okay. it was, it was, it was, 
a hype generation, not a postmortem. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> That's what I was asking. Um, and they were, and he was specifically told, do not mention the director. Interesting. <laughs> Just keep that on the down. Poison. Did anybody yeah. ask? Who's directing this film? Um, uh, I you, you might have heard of him. Some Anyways. Hollywood guy. Trust endings, me, it's in good endings. hands. Endings. <laughs> Not the ending of someone's career. Endings of a story. Right. Uh, how about you, Robin? Do you have a good example of an ending that works, sticks, does well? I hate, We always keep using the same examples, but um, Wreck-It Ralph is just such a brilliantly constructed Okay, film. yeah. <laughs> it's it is. just such a brilliantly... And I could talk about so many aspects and have ad nauseum and like videos that I have done. Um, All right. So let's mix it up because we have talked about it so much. Because yeah. I know for a fact there is another movie you can talk about that completely sucked at this. Okay. Which one? Legend of the Guardians of the Galaxy. No. Oh, uh, no uh, <laughs> Legend of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Rise of the Guardians. Rise of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Rise of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, man. All right. Which movie are we talking about? <laughs> Rise of the Guardians. Rise I of just, Guardians. Pick given, a DreamWorks film about... The, Santa, not Star-Lord. Got it. Yes, right. Santa, not Star-Lord. DreamWorks film that I think has a ton of potential that is incredibly undermined by the last line of the film. <laughs> yes, yes it is. So frustrating to me because I'm like, no, wait, well, what is that? I remember in the theater being like, what? So this, this entire film is sort of about... Uh, I'd say the core theme is sort of discovering what your center is, what your your mission is, and defining that for yourself. Discovering slash defining it for yourself. Um, and the the main character is Jack Frost, who no one can see because he's a, a fairy tale character that no one believes in. So without the belief, no one can see him, and he's been completely isolated on the planet. And then the boogeyman attacks and he has to band together with the guardians because he's elected by the man in the moon who made him into a supernatural creature to fight off the boogeyman. Did I do a decent job summarizing that? Yeah, that's about right. So you've got this this whole center idea and all the rest of it. And the last line of the film is, so remember, when the man in the moon tells you something, believe it. So, first of all, the Man in the Moon doesn't tell anyone pretty much anything other than, I guess, Jack is a guardian, which I guess he has some doubts about. And second of all, it sort of undermines this entire idea of what's, find who you are, discover what it is, you know, uncover, form your personal mission. And instead it's like, well, when some sort of supernatural being tells you something, fall in line. Yeah. <laughs> Ah, Which I think crazy. I think works better if they were going like because they they hinted that the reason why uh, Pitch the the villain the reason why he is the way he is is because he was originally chosen as a guardian and ignored his calling and you know became evil and used his cool powers for for bad things um, and so that kind of fits with that sort of thing but you could just as easily say that Pitch never found his center and you know actually hit your theme <laughs> so. <laughs> Or something like that. It just, it was so tacked on. And it felt so out of place. 
and counter to the other messages that it seemed to be saying on its own, that it undermined what it was doing rather than supported it. So that's, an, I think, an instance where it felt very clear that the people, either either what happened was that they had that as an idea and that was their ending and they didn't adjust their ending as they developed their story, or they flat out did not know what their ending really was and just sort of tagged that on at the end. And I'm, you know, I'm not sure what, what the case was, but it really was a was one of those stories where I was like, oh, one more rewrite, guys, and you would have had something really good here. Just one line rewrite, even? Even one line <laughs> rewrite. There were some other things that well, I, you know, uh, I think they could have done. It to... was based on a book, and I guess um, for me it would be curi- uh, curious to uh, see, read the book and see what the theme of the book was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Or how well that came off, and how well the ending works in the book, in order to determine how well they uh, did it in the film, and whether or not it matched, or they tried to go for something different, or or what happened. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think that's a, a good a good sign <laughs> that someone has not thought about their ending is when their ending is jarring or undermines uh, the the rest of the story itself. I actually felt that a little bit uh, coming out of How to Train Your Dragon 2. I was actually going to bring that up as well. Which we just saw this weekend at mm-hmm. the Dollar Theater because we are cheap and poor. Um, and I know people in general said, oh, well, you know, I like this, this one better, but I felt that it was a weaker film overall. And part of it was that it just, it felt like it lingered in the wrong places and uh, and didn't linger in the right in the right places. So there were there was both too much and too little of things in 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 different places. And it was also sort of scattered. But in terms of just endings, it it's sort of we were talking about Corey and I afterwards. We're talking about how could we have made the ending feel a little bit stronger because there's there's a, a loss of a major character in the film. And they really linger on it a lot in the center to the point where I was like, are they just going to quit here? Is it just going to be like a to be continued? Because ballsy move, if that's the case. And then the movie kept going almost anticlimactically after that point. And at the ending, everything is, they're working so hard to have this really upbeat feeling that they almost make it feel empty because now they're not acknowledging the loss of this character so there's too much loss in the middle and there's not enough bittersweet at the end where there should be and all it would have taken is if they had transposed the the end of that that that, that's half of that middle morning scene and made it more of a callback at the end where the character is like looking at a statue of the person that they lost or and, and giving this speech about reinforcing the theme about how you have to sort of find your own way and, and how do you live up to the expectations of others. And um, they could have made the ending really work and have a, a, a very much more of a resounding, concentrated whole feeling as opposed to it sort of being all over the place. And their beginning and their ending was just, you know what's cool about this place? Dragons! Dragons are cool! Everybody likes dragons! Woo! And I'm like, that's not really a theme. <laughs> like, Although, to be fair, cool, 
everyone does like dragons. I know. I yeah. mean, I love dragons. Um, Don't get me wrong on that one. But I feel like if we're talking about How to Train Your Dragon 2 specifically in terms of how it ends uh, for this conversation, um, I feel like it falls into a, one, one of the big Hollywood traps right now, which is in order to be a big blockbuster, you have to have that big action or end. And um, I feel like this movie kind of overloads it because the end of Act 2 is a big, huge dragon-on-dragon, army-on-army fight. And then the end is a big, huge dragon-on-dragon, army-on-army fight. And then, like, like, twice, like, pretty much in immediately after each other. They're, they're within uh, 15 minutes of each other, and um, it's just, I think it's overload. And um, when I say, you know, come up with your ending first, um, I really don't mean come up with your big action set piece at the end right. first. Um, again, you, you need to figure out how, how it's going to work, how the climax is going to work. In Wreck-It Ralph, the reason why it works, it, I mean, it, it is a big action-y moment, but the reason why it works at the end is the ending is not Wreck-It Ralph smashes us, uh, you know, the bad guy, and the ending is not Vanellope wins a car race. The ending is... Uh, uh, Ralph learns something about himself and then embraces it to the point where he's comfortable ending his life because his arc is complete. Well, the ending right. is the both of them find peace with who they are. That's true. It's I hadn't not thought just of it that Ralph way, but you're right, Vanellope does as well. It's also Vanellope that finds peace with who she is. And, and, and uh, also uh, um, Sergeant Calhoun, she does as well. Somewhat, yeah. I mean, there's less there's less actual action, or action as in like she she is participating. Yeah, with, I, I guess with the events, it's more she finds a person that she allows to herself to move past her tragic, most tragic backstory ever. Mm-hmm. Um, Felix kind of Felix doesn't need to come to terms with who he is. So much as he needs to understand that he he lives a very privileged life, um, and that maybe right. he shouldn't be completely was, ignorant of everyone well, he else. Just, he, he's clearly a cipher for the rest of the, uh, the the prevailing community opinion of villains. The classist Felix, society. Right. You don't have to Felix be a bad guy to, to be a racist, is kind of what it is. Felix needs to come to understand white privilege. Pretty much, Basically, yeah. 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 And he does, but you or, don't need uh, a big class privilege or whatever. Right. Yeah. But you don't need a big action sequence to show I've come to understand privilege. Yes. But uh, yeah. So, so I yeah, think that's, that's a big issue with How to Train Your Dragon and many many other films is so many people confuse uh, climax and ending, or even action climax and ending. And um, that's uh, if they're saying, "Oh, well, I got to write this big, huge battle sequence first. I mean, if if that serves your theme, absolutely, you should. No, nothing should get in your way. But if you're, uh, you know, trying to figure out how this character works and it is undermined by having them fight this war, maybe take a step back and figure out another way to make it work. Well, and I think at the at the risk of continuing our trend of only talking about, mo- or mostly talking about things we've already talked about, this to me also goes back to Limitless, which is the Drugs Are Amazing movie. Yes, I'm re talking about this. One. Right. And that, that whole movie builds up to this idea that this drug has side effects 
that this drug ruins lives after it's done making them awesome, but it always ruins them. And this drug is ultimately uh, going to ruin this character's life when he gets his comeuppance, which never happens because he f- figures out a way to make it perfect and has it for the rest of his life. And that's not how the book it's based on ends. And so it's very obvious that that ending was not stuck because focus groups or studio executives came in and said, no. It has to have a, some sort of happy ending, so let's make it that everything is la works out. It wouldn't surprise right. me if they filmed it the other way and that it didn't test well. Right. Which, yeah. I, I don't know how I feel about that. Like, there's something to be said for that artistic integrity where you tell your story the way it should be and then the audience be damned. But at the same time, I've seen so many times a story get better because somebody listened to a test audience. Oh, and I'm not saying yeah, don't... Yeah, but not always. No, not always. I'm not saying um, never listen to uh, test audiences, never listen to critics, or never listen to... Um, or editors especially, uh, because, yes, there are definitely things that would have been so much better if they had been listened to, and things that were better because the endings tested poorly. But um, there's also so many things that we can point to well-documented in the history of Hollywood where it's quite the opposite. Well, I'm thinking about, I remember a comic sort of diary comic was released by a person who had done oh what was it it was it was a fairly recent i believe it was a dc animated show that ended up being fairly critically acclaimed and popular with with both uh girls and boys i don't think it was the justice league one Young Justice. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it was that one, um, but it was similar to that. Anyways, they were talking about the experience they had with focus groups, where they had run run it through, and they were looking at what the kids were saying and asked questions, and they had uh, interest markers where all the kids in the audience would dial how interested they were on what was in the screen. So if they were really interested, they'd crank it all the way up, and if they were bored, they'd crank it down. Uh, and they divided it out by gender and by age, and then they had focus groups and discussion groups afterwards. And they said what was really interesting to them is that their impression of what the focus, what the the kids were saying and engaged by, and what the official focus group testers' impression were, were completely different. And the the focus group testers said you need to take out all of these things uh get rid of anything that's of interest to these different groups and clearly the kids are very confused by all of this stuff and not you know not engaged whereas their observations the creator's observations were that the kids were very engaged asking very in-depth intriguing questions clearly understood the material and they came out of it so discouraged because the the testers basically said you need to completely overhaul all of this it's you know it's worthless and uh, the creator was just in this huge funk and talked with the person that was sort of the main push behind the Batman animated series, which Paul is Dini. now hugely adored. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, we got the exact same comments and we decided to f- ignore all of them and go forward anyways. 
which in the end is what <laughs> the other creator decided to do as well. So I think I think that listening to the uh, the consumer is good. I'm a little skeptical on whether or not one should listen to the tester. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's, I mean, that's the story that um, the uh, Avatar guys tell about Legend of Korra, is that uh, the suits were very worried about, oh, you know, it, it, we can't have a female lead. Uh, you know, little boys won't, won't watch a show where there's a, a, a female lead. And their response when they went to the consumers, when they went to focus groups of, you know, 12, 10 to 12 year old boys was they don't care. She's a girl. They care. She kicks ass. Yeah. Is there butt kicking? Yes. No. <laughs> this is a very simple, <laughs> simple solution here. Put in more butt kicking. Take out less butt kicking. Well, kids <laughs> like their heroes to be heroes. They like their heroes to do heroic stuff and they like for their heroes to win. I think most people like that, not just kids. So, I don't think it's as hard as people make it sound to me, but but I'm not an expert. Anyways, and <laughs> we're all over the place, but maybe that's uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. Cuz again, this this kind of ties back into the whole idea that you really need to uh know what you're doing, know where you're going, plan your story out, and uh w- when you're talking about uh uh doing review you're 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 testing you're 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 asking people if you got it right mm-hmm. did the ending stick and if a kid can say yes then i guess that's good and if a kid doesn't then i hope your target audience isn't them well or and i think sometimes that this this is something that you see on the evil overlord list and this is the i will tell my plan to a 6 year old and if a 6 year old has problems with it I will not proceed until I have fixed them to the satisfaction of the six-year-old. <laughs> That's pretty uh, awesome. They do tend to see things in a different light. Well, so so you're you're advocating that um, if we write a story, we should tell it to a six-year-old, and if they see a problem with the story, fix it to the satisfaction of a six-year-old. Well, all I'm saying is that. Break it down into broad terms. Tell it to someone who is not a Hollywood executive or a you know a writer has a in vested interest same in industry. the project already. Right. Yeah. Or yeah, not just doesn't have a vested interest, but also has a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And if they say, well, wouldn't this just be solved easier if the cop just shot the guy and he would get away with it? Or wouldn't this be solved just by people talking? Mm-hmm. And if you can't answer that. Rewrite until you can answer that. Yeah. So you're saying all editors should act as if they're six years old. To an extent. I mean, it's the magicians find it very difficult to perform tricks for young children Mm -hmm. because young children have not learned to allow themselves to be misdirected. Right. And so they will see through your trick and vocally point out in the middle of your show what you did. Right, And so the ultimate kind of test is, can this trick fool a, a, a seven-year-old? Because if you really can fool someone who doesn't know that they need to play along and so won't play along, then you're golden. Well, it's kind of like Occam's Razor, and we brought this up when we were talking about uh, um, complexity and whether or not that equated to quality. 
And um, I think that this ties right into that in as much as, uh, again, if a six-year-old can point it out, usually a six-year-old is operating on basically the most direct path to a solution possible. And if you didn't take it, you made a mistake. Or Or, or at least consider it. Right. If you cannot adequately explain Mm -hmm. why, and that explanation may not be one that fits to a six-year-old, but it kind of should be. Right. they can't tell the truth because each of them is deeply emotionally broken. Okay, but if it's they can't tell the truth because otherwise this movie would be 37 minutes long. <laughs> well, it's like... Did you so- mean every romantic comedy written in recent yes, history? Yes, I did. Okay. And, well, and for certain things like uh, there was a... Uh, Stephen Colbert interviewed Ellen Page uh, and they were talking about Juno. And yeah. how uh, Juno is ultimately a very pro-life film and that she chooses to deliver the baby and give it up for adoption rather than having an abortion. And he asked Ellen Page why this is, given that it came out of liberal Hollywood and the writer is very outspokenly liberal. And Ellen Page's response was, because if she'd had the abortion, the movie would have been 30 minutes long. <laughs> That's a terrible answer. And yet it structurally we will accept certain things and in the and that was her being flip in the interview because there are certainly in the movie valid reasons that are presented right as long as it's written out that's the reason why and that's it was from the very beginning it was she can't go get the abortion 30 minutes in because otherwise we have no movie because this movie is not about the after effects of an abortion on her life so therefore, we need to come up with reasons why she doesn't have an abortion that work, and they do, but you can come up with ways to get to the ending you want based on structural things. They just have to m- make internal sense. I think that's kind of my, my uh, big thought here, is the reason why you want to have your ending thought out is so that your story makes sense. Um, ultimately that's it and ultimately that's the reason why we as writers or at least what I believe we should aspire to as writers which is to communicate clearly concisely and effectively and um, without an ending you don't um, God how unsatisfying is it when you when somebody comes in and says I've got this great story to tell you and then they trail off or they lose track of what it is and can't remember it and you don't know why they came to you in the first place I just want to say I'm sorry no, no, I'm, I actually, <laughs> this has nothing to do with you. Um, I'm just saying that uh, I think it's very, very human to kind of want that closure. And a good writer will give it regardless. You know, we'll, we'll do that as as well as they can every time. Mm-hmm. Well, and yeah. And it's, and this is especially hard, like Corey said, for organic writers. Because we write out piece by piece what happens next what happens next as opposed to having that highly architectural style but even here you know for me for border i know vague i know for the most part who is doing the killings who is and why they're doing it and that they're going to be caught those the exact specifics of when and where i'm filling in organically but I know what the point is, even if I don't know all of the exact names and places. See, I right. think that's the more key, is what's the point? 
less so what is the exact ending and more so what is what is the what is the point of all this other than not to know if we're listening to that skeleton uh, that's, <laughs> that's the, the mayor the mayor of halloween town oh no no you're right you're right yes i'm Any, thinking of a different speaking line. of tangents and losing track of what it was that i was <laughs> saying but overall it's it's if you have a i think the ending gives direction and ending is a good way to to kind of convey the need to know what your point is but i think that if you have a point and not necessarily the end you can still organically create a story that is strong if you accept that editing must be a major part of what you do and editing yes. should be a major part of what you do anyways Absolutely. but i think for an organic writer it becomes even more critical because there's less of that uh outlined and uh, extended period of forethought and more of a free-flowing process, which means that you're going to have a lot of content that will need to be cut. And when you get to the ending, that's when you figure out, oh, this is what I was trying to say. Now I have to go back and actually make sure that I am directing the train to get here with clarity. Because I, I've been thinking about this a lot. You can say something without having any intention to do so. You can have a make a story that has a point, but you cannot effectively or efficiently say something without intention. You mm-hmm. can do it on accident inefficiently, but you can't do it on accident efficiently. I definitely think that's a great way to look at it from a uh, from the perspective of the meta plot, from, from how the whole story is fitting together in theme. I think on a character level... Um, the the whole, whole idea of writing the quote-unquote ending first is what lesson did the character learn or not learn? How were they changed or not changed by the events or by themselves throughout the story? So, like, when we were talking about Wreck-It Ralph, um, how does a Wreck-It Ralph end? Well, you know, you've got this car race, you've got this, uh, you've got this confrontation, you've got this uh, self-sacrifice, um, and that's, that's all plot stuff. But um, I think... In that one, the important thing was to uh, the important thing that you find out, or th- that they worked out first before writing the rest of the story is here is the lesson Ralph will learn. This is how he's going to be feeling. This is the w- 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 the place he has come to as a character. And then they've done that with each of the characters, and uh, so you can see that the, uh, they've completed their arcs. And I-, I think that's important, just as important, if not more important than the plot stuff. Well, and what's so brilliant about that one is that it's the context that changes, not the words. Yes. And there's another film that we were talking about that also does this. Oh, the original How to Train Your Dragon, How to Train Your Dragon 1. Yes, yes, The reason does. that it the, the whole rah-rah dragons, rah-rah dragons doesn't work in How to Train Your Dragon 2, but the exact same kind of structure works brilliantly in the first one, is it in the first one, it's Hiccup basically going like, this is Burke. This is my life. It sucks. The people here sucks. Nothing is working. Nothing is functioning. Right. And I want to go to college, but that doesn't exist. Exactly. And then at the end, it's almost word for word the right. same thing. And yes, dragons fit in there. You know, it's like, well, we also have 
dragons, but they had the dragons at the beginning. It's what has changed is the context. What? So the word it's, itself are essentially the same, but they have a brand new meaning that actually reinforces this transformation that has occurred and, and really hammers home the importance of these changes because you get to see how much Hiccup has changed relative to his world and how much his world has changed relative to him. Whereas in two, it was, here's how great everything is beginning, and then here's how great everything is end, and nothing has changed. Even though you've had these huge changes, there's no acknowledgement to them because no context is really given to make the feeling that there's an important shift here that's happened. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I, again, it's it's you, you have your theme statement at the uh, beginning, you have your theme statement at your end, but it's really, really important to show that, that shift, that change, that that point of your story. And in the first one, it's to show how you can change your perspective from dragons suck to dragons are awesome. And the second one, it would seem to be, if you listen to only those pieces, it's dragons are awesome, and then that changes to dragons are awesome. That's not a change. <laughs> so um, I think it's really, really important and something they definitely dropped the ball on there, where I think a much a much better uh, way to have done that one would have been, again, to focus on the character who, who has passed away and kind of that, look, um, dragons are awesome at the start. And the second one, uh, and at the end, it's more of a, uh, it's tempered. It's, you know, um, dragons are awesome, but what's important is uh, being true to yourself and knowing who you are, and uh, being willing to protect the people you love. Something, yeah, something, like that. something along those, those lines. Yeah. And I think it's that desire to, to tie it back into something earlier. I think it's that desire to have that summation of a theme statement that completely blows um, Legend of the Guardian Owls of the Galaxy. <laughs> One of those Legend Rises Guardians galaxy um we're talking the because, jack frost thing again yes jack okay. frost no guardians of the galaxy itself is perfect um eh, but anyways <laughs> keep going keep going but in yeah in the jack frost one it's they wanted that same oh look we're we're summing up the movie like we did in um uh how to train your dragon it's just we forgot what the damn movie was about yes we we missed we missed the the middle pieces and the maybe the beginning piece and we're just tagging this on because there needs to be a moral to the story. But the moral actually has to work. Is, right. is the is the issue here. So we've kind of talked quite a bit about endings. Are we ready for our stuff in the middle segment? I think so. So stuff in the middle segment. It is here. It is upon us. So. The thing that inspired me this week is sort of a bit of an odd non sequitur kind of thing, but it is actually a box of mac and cheese. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, specifically, the back of it, this is Annie's homegrown mac and cheese, um, the, the ones with the little bunnies on them. And uh, this one's a little different than the one that I read, but they've been doing these little, these little letters on the back that always start with dear friend, and then it's talking about kind of their company when they first started out and the things that have changed and, and how things uh, have, have grown. And the one that I read originally was talking about how everything that they did was done in a, 
a warehouse where they had no heating and no AC and how in the winter months it would get so cold that they had a little air, a hair dryer so that she could keep her hands warm enough that they could be steady enough to write and, and box things up. And talking about how they delivered things by hand to people and made those personal connections and discussing how they felt that it was those very connections that were made in those sort of meager times that allowed them to grow and continue and have uh, 25 years of company to celebrate. And it really just put into perspective for me the importance of where Corey and I are right now with our company, which very much is in that sort of you know, we're, we're not obviously in a warehouse or anything, but that feeling of, of long hours and lots of, of direct personal time, even against things that are difficult or hard and, and just trying to find a way to keep everything, <laughs> keep everything going, but really having the chance to make those direct connections with people and, and meet people at conventions or online and, and, and have a personal connection with them that is a stronger kind of connection than something would be if we were really huge and no longer had the time to or opportunity to make those sorts of I keep saying connections but that's what they are relationships really so it it was just sort of a uh, I guess speaking of endings and talking about endings it was sort of a you know this is this is where you can be going and this is where you are now, and it's okay to be where you are. So that was sort of my my random non-sequitur back of a macaroni and cheese box inspiration for this week. Cool. Matt? I'm trying to think what's inspired me this week. It's been a very long couple of weeks, and so I'm... If you need a minute, I can go. Yeah, why don't you go, and I'll come up okay. with... Um, this happened actually, uh, I guess, uh, a week and a half ago. Um, uh, a week and a half ago, we were down in Colorado Springs at Escape Velocity Comics because they had been, uh, they, they ran their first, uh, ever Geek Girls Night Out event, which is kind of a, uh, an outreach to, uh, uh, women who are interested in comics in the Colorado Springs area, and uh, the idea is to get more women interested in comics and get women who are working in the comics industry down as kind of uh, people who can speak or uh, kind of share their knowledge of the industry, how how it's treated women in the past, how it might change in the future, and uh, they actually invited Robin to be their first ever uh, uh, speaker, prof- industry professional. So we got to go down there and had a blast. And um, kind of like what Robin was saying, where it's okay to be where we are now, I feel like that event, which was pretty much the first time Robin's been uh, asked to be the... It, it was the first time we, we had an appearance as our company, as our indif- industry professional selves, by invitation. And um, I guess I feel like uh, that... That's where we will be. That's that's where we're trying to get to, and what we can become, uh, the kind of people who who give these sort of uh, professional uh, appearances and uh, can be voices, strong voices, good voices, and influences on the community, both locally and ultimately uh, in in the larger community of comics as a whole. So I'm I'm just kind of inspired to see that kind of taking off, and uh, 
I hope we'll be able to do more things like that in the future. And, yeah, and Robin knocked it out of the park, by the way. It was awesome, oh. and she was very, very well-liked. That is, And that really is a night out for you to go down to uh, Colorado Springs. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's not too bad a drive. And it was it was just, I really liked that shop, too. Escape Velocity is a really great shop. And I really, the, the stores that I enjoy the most, it's sort of odd that while we live in Denver, the places that we're connecting with more are uh, north and south of us. Boulder and Colorado Springs, yeah. yeah. They're shops where they really care about forming communities and, and reaching out and doing activities and events. Um, the Escape Velocity is also doing the Colorado Art Fest Day that we'll be participating in um, in September. Oh, wait, it is September. Oh, crap. That's like next weekend. Um, we yeah, I think it's really <laughs> soon 13th. here. Oh, God. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I'm just going to be... We got a week and a half. Here. Yes. I'm inspired to do that. I, Me too, but it snuck up on me all of a sudden. <laughs> it's going to be fun, though. But same with um, Time Warp in Boulder. Is It's just they really work to create a great space that's welcoming. And I just really appreciate that about them. So I think that ultimately what I will say is inspiring me recently is two things. First, uh, on a very personal thing, continuing my really disturbing trend of being inspired by shit that I'm doing. <laughs> it's um, be inspired by yourself. I recently took back up um, rapier combat in the SCA. Uh, the kingdom that I'm living in now didn't have it for a number of years and approved last year at this time ended the experiment and formally approved rapier combat in a way that is different than most of the rest of the SCA. The SCA, for those of you who haven't heard me talk about it, is a medieval recreation organization. It's um, awesome. And I'd essentially taken four years off of rapier, had not practiced, have misplaced most of my gear, and... Uh, finally got in a place where I felt like I could go out, get authorized, and on my birthday, I went out, got authorized again, and won a tournament. A week later, I came in second in a very prestigious tournament um, and have just been doing really well. And so the inspiring part of that is not, ha-ha, I kick ass. <laughs> it's, it's never too late for you, you to go back to something that you used to love. Sometimes it's not because we stop loving something that we fall away from it. It's because we, you know, our life moves us in mysterious ways and we feel like there's a gap. But very, very rarely is that gap impossible to bridge. I'm not in as good a shape as I was when I was doing this regularly uh, before I moved to Thailand. And that's saying something because I was not in great shape before. Um but I've come back to it. I found that those skills have not abandoned me, that those instincts have not abandoned me, and that I am still in a place where I can do it and love it just phenomenally. Um, and the other thing that's inspiring me is kind of a, a burgeoning reaction to some of the things that have been going on with um, Anita Sarkeesian and the rearing of its head again of some really disturbing streaks of misogyny in gamer culture. 
I actually and haven't heard much about her uh, for about the last three months, so I'm actually yeah, really curious for an update. Yeah, I avoided talking to you about it because I didn't want to start another massive discussion about feminism and how angry I am at the world. Ooh, okay. Okay. <laughs> well, let's do it. Go, go ahead. Go for it. Can so of worms opened. Anita Sarkeesian uh, released another one of her videos, which I've always enjoyed uh, greatly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't always agree with every part of them, but I think that they bring a lot of very important perspective and a lot of very important truths to light about gaming, in p- particular how video games in general have treated depictions of women. After this most recent one was released, she was essentially driven out of her home by threats against a person. Um, including people threatening her with pictures of her home and her bedroom, I believe. And so counter to that is kind of a rising speaking out, I think, for the first time for some people and ongoing speaking out for some people, but a growing awareness among gamers that this is here and that it is just the most toxic shit in the world. And so I, that the number of people that have come out and commented on it, the number of people who are saying, no, this doesn't represent me and we can't let this represent our community is fairly, fairly in, inspiring to me. Obviously, someone being threatened for expressing views on the internet is unacceptable. Someone being threatened with misogynistic violence for saying, hey, don't video games sure have a lot of misogyny, is both completely unacceptable and comically missing the point. But the fact that that there has been this groundswell of, no, we have to redefine who this is. We have to be willing to say that this is unacceptable is is a good sign to me. And I, I choose to be hopeful and inspired by the thought that maybe we can get past some of the, the negative associations with gaming and how we treat women. You, you be hopeful, because I want someone to ho- hang on to that. I will stay here being pessimistic. <laughs> Are you, you're going to be pessimistic about oh, it? Oh, I'm hugely pessimistic about it. Well, this. to be really? fair... A woman who makes internet videos talking about violence against women was just threatened with violence against her, a woman. So there's a lot to be pessimistic about, too. But I, I am choosing to see and focus on the, the reactions of people speaking prominently in support of completely rethinking how gaming culture treats women. And it's something that is not unique to gaming culture, and that needs to be pointed out as well. Because I think a lot of times um, gaming culture takes perhaps an unfair of bur- an unfair burden as being, oh, the worst treatment of women in our culture, and I think that TV and movies are just kind of quietly whistling in the corner, <laughs> hoping nobody, nobody looks at them because they're all yelling about games. But that that we are talking about it and that it's not just all oh she's just jealous angry un- ugly a lesbian whatever the standard criticism is 
when a woman points out something wrong with the world. The fact that there are so many people going, yeah, she's she's right, is is something I'm choosing to be hopeful about. And I recognize I'm choosing to be hopeful about it. I think that's important. Um, not to, uh, I guess, we could have a whole other episode about this subject alone. But um, I'm going to be with you, Matt. I'm I'm hopeful as well, and um, I'm standing with you, and and I guess with Anita and a lot of other people who who want to see this trend change. And I'm I'm optimistic because I feel like uh, bigotry is one of those things that uh, cannot stand the truth. And when you expose it to the truth, it withers and it dies. And and I feel like, ultimately, a lot of people choose to remain ignorant on these subjects. But in the world that we're coming to, that won't be possible much longer. And I feel like uh, I I feel like we will come to a better place. But it'll be ugly before we get there. And the reason why is because uh, bigotry, like anything else. Before it dies, it goes it goes crazy, and considering how crazy bigotry was to begin with, um, that's saying something. So uh, I guess I choose to remain hopeful, but I am keenly aware of how ugly this subject can get. So that's my two cents. I I I think it's good that there are people that are out there that are hopeful. I just. I just, I, I, I'm happy you're there. I wish you the best. I just can't join you on your island. <laughs> All right. I, like, I don't mean to be a downer. I'm just... I, like, that kind of blows me away because you are doing more to uh, fight this battle than either of us. You're being a strong, opinionated creator of well-gender-balanced comic art. And we're not. You know what I mean? I'm, yeah, Matt, Matt has I his guess... stories, and those have been very well gender-balanced as well, and I'd like to think my own work is not terrible in that regard either, but you being the most successful of the three of us, I think uh, you you do more in this regard, whether uh, regardless of your optimism level. So I think that optimism requires a level of energy that I, having lived every single day in a constant fear that the that the price of my success will be receiving daily rape and death threats and living with that anxiety and fear it undermines my ability to have hope and seeing this kind of stuff happen to someone who is you know successful enough to to have a big impact only reinforces that that lingering anxiety and belief that it's only a matter of time and the price that I will have to pay for limelight is worrying about someone following me home and murdering me in my sleep. So it's hard for me to have optimism. I think it's necessary and I think it's important that people do. But I think optimism requires a level of energy that I don't have because it's going into fear. Or rather it's going into coping with the fear that I have daily. Even just walking down a street alone. So I appreciate I appreciate your energy. I think it's great that it's there. I think it's necessary to push forward for a world that's different. I just don't know if I have it for myself right now. And sure, that's fine. Um, I'm sad to hear you say that, but at the same time, I get it. Um, I guess from my perspective, it's uh, basically... Sorry, Matt, we got all... 
deep and dark and crazy. <laughs> well, he brought it up. Okay. Yeah, I brought, brought up, up so. death and rape threats to a prominent internet person. To I what inspires you today, yeah. Um, I guess, well, okay, well, I to think, be fair. I think your point about inspiration is completely valid. I do too. I, I was being facetious. I, I, my, my point is is uh, I, I, I agree that it kind of takes that energy and I, I, I'm really sad to hear that you feel like the that you can't get muster that energy because of how pervasive the problem is but at the same time I still feel like people like you more than anyone else are going to be what changes this into no longer being a problem maybe I, I just feel like I'm not it's one of those things where like, I f feel really strongly about having gender balanced casts and to have a, someone who's transgender and to have people that are of different ethnicities and have people of color. And at the same time, I feel like I'm only qualified for such a tiny portion of that to even have characters like that. And I'm constantly worrying about whether or not I even have the right to write about what I'm writing about. And I think maybe that's worth a whole topic all on its own. But it it's this catch-22 where on the one hand I feel like inevitably I'm going to screw something up. I'm going to represent someone in a way that is unintentionally hurtful out of just being ignorant. No matter how much research I do or how aware I try to be or how human I try to make a character, I'm going to screw it up. And at the other hand, if I don't make an effort to include these kinds of, of characters and to be inclusive of and aware that there are other kinds of people besides white female or that is which is what I am, then I feel like I'm contributing to the problem. So it's this this sort of like you're saying I'm making such a difference, but I worry that I don't even have the the right to try. But oh we're getting so off topic. Yeah. Also <laughs> we're getting off of a uh, inspiration. <laughs> I'm going to drive this into the ground and <laughs> tell you that much. What's inspiring me after Robin's speech is liquor, liquor. and the inevitable heat death of the universe. <laughs> ah, entropy. My, my calling once again. My constant companion. And through me it speaks. Given to despair for the heat death of the universe is coming. Did you prepare that? No. That was, that was really good off the cuff. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Well, I have to, you know, represent the master of endings somehow. Entropy. I was going to say uh, that I, my 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 uh, depressing thought during uh, that was, Robin, your reward for fame will be the same as everyone's eventual death. <laughs> you know, it's funny because someone was once talking to me about like things that I was worried about, and I said, you know, at the end of the day, the one thing that I can at least say to myself that I don't have to worry about is the heat death of the universe because I will be dead before that happens. And I find that an incredible relief to think about. That's what comforts you. It comforts me. It really does. Because that sounds so nightmarish that everything becomes so homogenous because there's no energy left to transfer that this the whole universe just becomes this lingering lack of energy anything entropy wins the end which if you ever want to see what that looks like kansas <laughs> see and i hate kansas no offense to anyone that lives in kansas but 
boy, I took a lot of road trips through Kansas, and I, it's not a place that I have a lot of fond memories for. So the idea of nothing but Kansas throughout an entire infinite universe is just so horrible. So knowing that I don't have to live through that is just awesome. I have Absolutely. fond memories of, of people from my three years of Kansas. The actual Kansas parts of it, not as much. Yes. Well, it depends on the part of Kansas. Yes. Once Kansas might as well be Missouri, it's actually fairly pretty. Yes. Yes, it but is. But then you have to deal with the fact that it's Missouri. And there's a reason you can buy Jack Daniels in gas stations, and that reason is because you need it. Also, the wind line. Everything, yes. like looking on a map of vegetation of Kansas, is amazing because there's like this vertical line where the vegetation just stops and the wind begins. I'm, Anyways, we. Have... I'm gonna go ahead and state in the official Moco record that I have nothing against Kansas. <laughs> and those of you listeners who who may be um, thinking that my cohorts have have abandoned you. There's always there's always me. I've I've got your back. Stalwart lover. That's right. Hey, I did my I I did <laughs> three did. years in Topeka. I, I, like you I feel I like I've earned. <sighs> yeah, I've, like I've, I've 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 I have earned any feelings about Kansas that I have. Oh, I'm not invalidating your feelings. I'm merely capitalizing on your um, uh, our, our our plunging popularity. Yes, <laughs> yes. Corey's trying to get in good. Mm-hmm. Okay, who's up for a writing challenge today? <laughs> Three classmates are uh, attending the first day of class. They are discussing with each other the different reasons that they came to this class and chose it over the other classes available in the curriculum. They must come from different backgrounds and have different reasons for choosing this class. The class is learning to pilot giant robots. As before, if you'd like to try your hand at writing your response to this spontaneous prompt, feel free to pause the recording right now, give yourself 10 minutes on the clock, and write the best opening sequence you can. We'd love to read your responses, so feel free to email them to info at mocopress.com, and we'll share the ones that we get on the air. You can also go to the MoCo Press website, click on the page for this podcast, and post your responses in the comments below. Thanks so much, and we look forward to seeing your solution to this opening scene. Because they're giant robots that we get to fight in? Duh, Kyoko stated simply. She shook her brown hair, sending it tumbling back over her shoulder as the three of them filed into the garage. She was dressed in expensive, if simple elegance, a cashmere cardigan and a plaid skirt that looked like a school uniform, which, of course, they didn't have. Michaela sighed, tucking her short, cropped hair back behind her ears. But why the violence? she asked. Small, dark-skinned, and mousy, she had mostly fallen in walking with them because of proximity, but now joined them every day on their way to class. Think about what this technology is. It's tied directly into our brains. She gestured vaguely at her skull, as if they needed reminding where the brain was. Sometimes, Elsie thought, Kyoko does. Why is it going to giant robots, not artificial limbs or immortality? Kyoko snorted. Why would you want to live forever? To which Michaela blinked, as if offended. 
They continued to bicker about all the usual ups and downs of immortality as they walked, and Elsie zoned them out. Kyoko had never wanted for anything, and so she saw no reason to want to live forever. Michaela was just now seeing a world greater than the rundown city of her birth, and so she wanted to experience everything forever. Elsie didn't know why she was here. Tachibana Women's College, a school halfway across the world from her family, and expensive as hell to boot, hadn't been what anyone would have called her future. She'd shrugged her way through classes in high school and only applied to the college on a lark. One of the few remaining liberal arts schools in the wake of the inversion, maybe it was the pictures of the campus that had drawn her. The people looked happy and the campus stunning. It hadn't disappointed. In the soft warmth of fall, with the reverse sakura unblooming, it was gorgeous. And she'd heard it offered an eclectic course load, although she hadn't expected how eclectic. What about you, Easy? Kyoko asked. Elsie sighed. The Japanese woman was an inveterate nicknamer, not content until everything had a diminutive or a descriptive or something. What about me what? Why did you sign up for Introduction to the Operation of Mechanica? Michaela followed up, curiosity gleaming in her dark eyes. Sometimes Elsie worried she would be the eponymous cat. Others she worried that the girl would be Schrodinger instead. Curiosity, Elsie answered, drawing a satisfied fist pump from Michaela, but not about why they're using it for gladiatorial combat in a secret mechanical kumite, the smaller girl pouted. Then why, Kyoko demanded. Because I wanted to know why the hell they offered piloting giant robots and it wasn't in the brochure. <laughs> awesome. I That's really liked a... Reverse Sakura Unblooming. Yeah! That... <laughs> the Inversion is a pretty awesome name for a disaster, too. It is. I have no idea what it is, but it was like, <laughs> well, apparently I a disaster. It, yeah, apparently it causes Reverse Sakura to be a thing. <laughs> Everyone's living time backwards. Or maybe that was just something they engineered because they thought it would be funny. Could be. <laughs> I liked it. Good job. Thank you. All right, am I up then? Yup. Okay. This is the problem with group projects, Cynthia muttered under her breath as the deck beneath her feet shuddered and she ran down the catwalk. A klaxon blared, red lights flashing, dire warnings. Only one person ever cares enough to do the work. Another impact shook her off her feet, and she half fell into the chair of the nearest station. The screen she steadied herself against flickered, tracking inbound hostiles. She checked the vital systems readout and swore, flicking her comm badge on. Angie, what the hell? Are we missing an arm? Yeah, so? Cynthia could barely hear Angela over the garble of hard rock that clogged the station. So? That's a whole letter grade right there. Just what are you doing up there? The only thing that got me to join this dumb class blowing things up with guns. <laughs> Cynthia grit her teeth. <laughs> and how many of those things are the attack drones? There was a pause. Half? Cynthia silently shook her fist at all lazy professors that assigned group projects to reduce the number of papers they had to grade. Never mind. Ladasha, how's the convoy? Should we alter course? Uh, I don't think so, came the timid reply. 
Ladasha, it's kind of your job to know. You wanted captain, remember? Not engineering or weapons or... I know, I know. Honestly, I thought the captain's job would be easier than this. Why do I need to know any of this? Anyway, I'm just going to be designing these things, not driving them. You wouldn't think we'd need a whole letter grade for that. Cynthia's retort was cut off as an explosion rocked their giant robot, and suddenly the sensation of acceleration stopped abruptly. The artificial gravity cut out, and Cynthia had to strap herself into the chair lest she float away. She stared glumly at the readout. Angie? Yeah? Did we just lose our entire torso? Whoops. <laughs> Cynthia put her head into her hands. She was so getting an F on this assignment. That's good. I like it. Seemed very informed by your personal experience in group <laughs> projects. My deep hatred of group projects, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, but I liked that one too. I liked the um, the inner workings of it, and the yet the some some things about college will never change. Yep. College that's consistent all the way through, like when they start assigning in elementary school group projects. Yeah, the giant mecha Pain. projects that you got in. The bane but, of my existence. <laughs> but with more guns. But That's with right. more guns, yes. Admittedly, I would have been a little more interested in, in actually finishing those group projects had there been more guns involved, but... Especially <sighs> giant robot guns. In mm -hmm. space! Cool. Hey, I thought you both did a really good job. <laughs> so, not, not quite was... the curveball I thought it was. <laughs> no, it it was a curveball, but it made us both think. And I think it's interesting that we both went for some uh, some similar things. Um, both of ours had three women. Mm -hmm. um, I know for mine, it wasn't as much a conscious thought as maybe I was in a certain mindset after our earlier discussion of the heat death of the universe. Um but also that the first thing that came to my mind was the name of the school, Tachibana Women's College, because I thought it would be funny if they had a giant robot piloting class. Yeah. Heck yeah. That wasn't on the it's brochure. Like, yeah. It's but, like if you yeah. look at, yeah, and that was the other part was that they didn't advertise it. It's like if you went to Bryn Mawr and found that it was actually a school of witchcraft and wizardry, but no one ever, <laughs> no one talked, ever talked about, about it. it. Or the yeah. Gonzaga Ninja program. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, oh god, now I really that, that needs to be a thing. The Gonzaga Ninja program. <laughs> the Gonzaga Ninja <laughs> program. <laughs> that how sounds awesome. I would have gone there. <laughs> how hard is it to gin up some fake degrees? <laughs> Not that hard. What what do you want? <laughs> I'm just saying that I somehow somewhere we need to work in something that has the Gonzaga Ninja program. <laughs> Make a note, Matt. Next time you have you get to give the prompts, which will be the next time, you can have something with the Gonzaga. I mean in an actual, camp. I mean in an actual work that we oh, put out there. Like, yeah, yeah. Oh, or or something to hang on the wall, you know. Right. Like, that too. The law, law degree and then Gonzaga Ninja program. That's right. Exactly. That that'll be maybe that'll be our Christmas gifts to each other. We'll get. <laughs> Robin, you can have a Degrees. fake degree to uh, the Bryn Mawr College of Witchcraft and Wizardry. Yes. And Corey and I can be graduates in ninjaology from the Gonzaga Ninja Program. I'm, I'm actually okay um, having a giant mecha degree from uh, Tachibana's Women College. Okay, so you <laughs> can... Tachibana's you can, Women's College, Corey. You, 
with the, so that's our assignment. We have to for Christmas. Corey gets a uh, bachelor's of science in uh, giant mecha piloting from Tachibana Women's College. Robin can have a, a bachelor's of it's magic and art or a science. It's kind of yes. both. So maybe it's a, a BAS. A BAS in uh, in magic from Bryn Mawr College of Witchcraft and Wizardry. And I want a BA in uh, ninja ninja studies from the ninja Gonzaga studies. Ninja program. Mm-hmm. Make it so, number one. So we will have to do this. No, we have to do it for each other. Okay. Um, round, round robin, but, so to speak. Round robin style. Yeah. But that being said. <laughs> <laughs> takeaways. Yes, takeaways. Um, I guess for me, my takeaway is just that... Um, Again, the the idea of knowing where you're going is really, really important, and that applies both to your plot and to your character. If it applies to your plot, it's going to have to do with theme. If it applies to your character, it has to do with their growth. But um, knowing where you're going uh, is, is very, very important. Even if you're not specific about the exact way it's going to be, you should have an idea, or your project will suck. That's my <laughs> takeaway. Uh, for me, I was thinking more along the lines that uh, knowing an ending can give your work a sense of inevitability. Not that it feels uh, that it has no <coughs> surprise in it, but instead that when it's reviewed upon later viewings, that the viewer sees this sense of where it was going from the beginning, but because of the shift in context, it still has surprise for the first time viewing. And that having an ending specifically is not nearly as important as having a specific purpose in mind. And that that purpose can be that driving force as long as you know what you want to say, the ending itself can be flexible. So those are my takeaways. Yeah, and I think that my takeaway would be much the same thing, that your your ending doesn't have to be and and then X and Y and Z and double Z. It can be, I know who did it, if it's a whodunit, uh, which is a fascinating conjugation of the, that word. <laughs> um, it can be what the point is. It It can be a more broad understanding of that ending. But it's still going to drive you toward, um, drive you toward a point, drive you toward meaningful resolution. Great, uh, Matt. Where can we find more of your work? You can find more of my work at the occasionally read by my father web fiction, Border Kansas at www.border-ks.com. And you can find more of my work at leylinescomic.com. You can also see what we're up to at mocopress.com. And if you have enjoyed what you've listened to today and would like to help support us in our projects, please consider becoming a backer at patreon.com slash mocopress, spelled M-O-K-O-P-R-E-S-S. Thanks so much for joining us today, and keep writing. Also... Look for the new to be formed lies about Nebraska.tumblr.com. <laughs> and please enroll in the Gonzaga Ninjutsu program. Yes. <laughs>
Music for this episode was created by Reasoner. You can find more of his work at reasoner.newgrounds.com.